Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. My guest today, Stephanie Barrientos, is a professor of global development at the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. She studies the intersection between gender dynamics and trends in global trade. Her latest research examines how global sourcing by supermarkets and brands we all know are impacting gender relations and gender norms around work and jobs in the developing world. These brands more and more often rely on what is known as a global value chain to source their raw materials and bring their goods to market. Her latest research examines how these global value chains are impacting gender patterns around work and gender equality more broadly. I found this conversation to be both a great introduction to the concept of the global value chain in global trade and also the implications of global value change on both inspiring or in some cases hindering progress toward gender equality. This is some pretty new and exciting research, and I'm glad to bring it to you as part of my partnership with the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. Experts from the Global Development Institute discuss their research and also the pressing news of the day as it relates to global inequalities and development. If you'd like to learn more about the Global Development Institute, you can go to gdi.manchester.ac.uk. This episode is, in fact, the last installment of this content partnership. If you want to view all of these episodes, you can go to globaldispatchespodcast.com. They are all there. And I should say, if you are with an organization and you have content you think might be of value to the broader Global Dispatches podcast listening audience, uh, send me a note and I would love to tell you about our content partnership opportunities. We also feature advertising on the show if you want to reach a large number of people in a short period of time with a single message and announcement or something that you think might resonate with a Global Dispatches podcast listening audience. You can use the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com to get in touch with me, and I can tell you about our advertising and content partnership rates and availabilities. And now here is my conversation with Professor Stephanie Barrientos of the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. Um, the book is, is titled Gender and Work in Global Value Chains, Capturing the Gains, question mark, and it will be published by Cambridge University Press in 2019, probably around the summertime. 
Excellent. So congratulations. And also, I, I have many questions about your title specifically, namely, what is a global value chain? What do we mean when we say global value chain? Yeah, so this is something that many people ask outside, particularly outside of the business world. Um, so if you think about trade has existed for many centuries between countries, but was largely conducted between intermediaries through quite remote markets. So if you bought something, if you went into a shop and bought something, it was uh, unlikely that the um, that the seller, the, the shop seller or the retailer would know exactly who produced it or in what circumstances it was produced. But since the 1980s, um, we've had rapid growth in global retail, global brands, uh, many of them very well known, like Walmart or Nike or Gap. And these very large companies don't operate through through traditional markets. They operate through global value, change, value chains, which they coordinate so that they coordinate the distribution, the production, the, the conditions, the, the uh, quality specifications. And that also can be quite complex value chains involving multiple suppliers in multiple countries where all the components are, are, are finally put together. And it facilitates just-in-time production. Mm. So if you think about if you go into a retailer, there's this constant flow of goods coming through the system, um, and it's all helped to reduce costs um, and and produce large numbers of consumer goods at low prices. So let me um, ask you about a specific example. So I was in the grocery store yesterday. It's nearly Easter time. You know, I, I may be Jewish, but I'm not above having a Cadbury bunny this time of year. So can you maybe talk me through every step of the way from um, how that uh, Cadbury bunny gets on my shelf here in the United States to um, wherever it began? Yes. So if you think of uh, uh, chocolate, the Cadbury bunny is obviously primary uh, component is chocolate. The cocoa itself, if it's Cadbury, will most likely have come from Ghana um, and will have been produced by smallholder producers in Ghana um, and then gone through the, the, the processing of the cocoa um, in not in Ghana. The cocoa itself will have been um, shipped out. Um, and possibly sent to a, a, a Cadbury um, uh, processing unit, either within Ghana or it, either within uh, another part of Africa, or, or more likely in the United States or in in Europe. Um, there, it'll be processed into chocolate um, and combined with the cocoa itself being processed, and then combined with um, uh, milk and sugar and other ingredients to produce the final chocolate. The chocolate will then be distributed through the Cadbury distribution system into the various countries where they retail the, 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 final, the final product, which you go and buy. And that process is, is ongoing on, on a constant pro, uh, basis throughout the year. Obviously, the cocoa itself is, um, is only uh, produced at certain seasons in the year, but the, the processing of the cocoa into different components that then make up the chocolate is a constant process. It involves other intermediaries as well, um, like very large cocoa processors who will also be contracted by Cadbury. But they will coordinate that process well in advance. So those bunnies didn't just turn up on the shelf 
randomly. They the, the planning of when those bunnies would appear, at what price, what, what packaging they would have been in, etc., will all have taken place at least a year, if not longer, in advance. Um, and it's a monster. The the whole process is monitored on a just in time basis to keep the constant replenishment of those those bunnies. Imagine if a kid went in a store just before Easter and and wanting their favourite bunny or their parents were looking for the favourite bunny and they couldn't find it. So the horror, a a terrible, a terrible event. So So this is is a big difference between the traditional uh, free market trade and a coordinated uh, global value chain, which Cadbury will coordinate their own value chain. And and your research identifies the way in which um, gender patterns around work are affected by global value chain, this, this sort of new iteration of the global value chain? Yes. And I, I think this is really um, a, a very strong component of my research is that women play an absolutely critical role. In fact, they play a critical role at all stages of the value chain, but most particularly if you think about who the consumers are, um, uh, approximately 70% of all of all purchases, not not consumption itself, very important to differentiate, um, men and women eat, but uh, women tend to do the majority of the purchases. It's estimated 70% or more of all purchases are undertaken by women. Um, but all the way along the chain, and particularly, and this is a very important part of global value chains in terms of why global sourcing has become so critical because from the 1980s, a lot of the uh, production, not in the case of something like cocoa, but say something like garments or, or apparel, used to be produced in Europe and North America um, as part of the, the, the retail and global sourcing revolution that took place in the 1980s. Increasingly, that global sourcing is lo- has been relocated to um, emerging economies, lower income economies where labor is cheaper um, and the labor costs are lower. And women have played a critical role um, in that pro- in the production for many, many goods uh, that go into global value chains, particularly apparel. Mm-hmm. So, Yeah, I remember of- visiting um, a garment factory in Bangladesh maybe 10 years ago. And, you know, it was almost exclusively women um in yeah in in you know producing and and creating um garments for you know brands that you know we would recognize gap tommy bahama and 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 all that exactly Exactly. and if you think of a country like bangladesh this has been really quite a a big transformation 20 30 years ago bangladesh in bangladesh cultural norms meant women were largely remained in the home within their villages um, and and had a, a very limited role outside, just just uh, in, in the sort of public sphere, if you like, just as part of the sort of traditional norms of women's role in society. And the introduction or the expansion of garment production in Bangladesh has meant the very rapid expansion of female employment. Um, millions, somewhere between three and four million workers in in Bangladesh garments uh, at somewhere between 60, 70 percent 
um, are, are women, and many of them come from rural villages. And this has been a, a, a big upheaval in society, but it's also um, led meant that women now can earn uh, incomes in their own independent uh, in their own independent basis, um, and it's given them a greater freedom as well. But, and there's a big but, uh, they are very low paid. Um, they receive a very small proportion of the final value of the garments you buy. Um, and they still face m- multiple challenges. So at one level, it's been very positive for women. At another level, it still remains very challenging. And, and they face many difficulties, as Bangladesh Garments has 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 uh, illustrated in terms of the various crises that have been there over the number of years yeah I, I mean I, I i remember just um seeing sort of two kind of striking images still stick in my mind from that visit to um the bangladeshi uh, garment factory one is just the number of people waiting to get in to to work and and also the number of people applying for jobs uh is is one just a striking amount of women and then once inside the really almost like depressing feel uh, inside the place and how um, everyone looked just like not that happy at all to be there. Like clearly they're earning, earning very little wage. The work was very hard and it, it was just sort of, all, it, it was like gloomy almost in, in inside there. Yes, no, that's right. And there's, there's been um, a lot of issues, particularly if you, if you probably, you might not have looked at it closely, but if you had looked closely, you would have found that the, the vast majority of the management and the supervisors were all male mm-hmm, yeah. and that the women were doing all the, the very low wage labor intensive work um, under their supervision. Um, and, and there are that sort of traditional um, norms which keep women sort of down, if you like, in in that subordinate position. But I think things are beginning to change, and and it's I think one of the things that my research has shown is that whilst there's a lot of what we call the low road, um, uh, very exploitative labour, and and there is and a, and, a, and a number of problems in some industries um, for workers as a result of that. Um, in some sectors and in some uh, firms, um, suppliers are upgrading um, in terms of trying to produce higher value products. And when they upgrade, they need to enhance the skills of their workers. And in order to get a more skilled workforce, they also need to pay better and provide better conditions. So it's it, it, the, the research that I've done and, and the book uh, really kind of provides lots of different examples of this. In most sectors, you can find both very exploitative conditions where workers are very downtrodden, but you can also find examples where the reverse, at least there is movement towards better conditions and better uh, uh, outcomes for women workers and raising their skills. Um, and that gives them greater choices. So um, can you talk through um, some of those examples and some of the the case studies that you do that sort of illustrate your your point? Mm. Yes. I mean, I think on the downgrading, what I call the downgrading side, um, an example would be in agriculture. Uh, Women have long played a key role in agriculture, particularly as seasonal workers um, and uh, in Africa, Asia, 
in Europe and North America as well. So so in, in pretty well every country, women have been brought in at, at the height of the season. And there is evidence that uh, pressure from retailers and supermarkets on prices um, and combined with global competitive pressures means that um, increasingly in some sectors and in some countries, uh, producers have increased the number of casual and seasonal workers, um, often bringing in migrant workers to undercut the wages of local workers, etc. And it's partly because of the pressure that they're put under, um, uh, so that any pressures that the suppliers have, they have knock-on effects onto workers. So there you've got a very clear examples of downgrading where workers now have less security, they have lower wages, they face difficulties uh, simply maintaining their families um, and the wages they have a not sufficient for a living wage. But in contrast, you also got um, examples, and, and a good example would be the Kenya flower industry. Um, and there are individual examples, certainly from um, garments as well, where suppliers have, have uh, or buyers initially, have been put under pressure by civil society campaigns. Civil society campaigns, trade union and NGOs have played an important role in in, in pressurising buyers to to uh, ensure that 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 conditions are better for workers in their supply chain. Um, and where th those kinds of pressures have really come through, so Kenya Flowers is an example where there were big campaigns um, in Kenya and externally uh, throughout the 2000s. But slowly, the bigger flower growers, not all of them, but the bigger flower growers, um, the more uh, progressive, if you like, began to improve conditions for women workers. 70% of workers are female in flower production, gave them more secure contracts, reduced uh, on the ability of male supervisors to, to uh, harass women workers, which had been quite common previously. More and more women then became supervisors themselves. They got better training. They had access to gender committees. Um, as they got better training, women started to move up within the, the, the leading companies. Um, and so you now have a much higher proportion of women in management um, as well as in supervisory roles. And, and the key um, difference and, and, and the key impetus was pressure from consumers. I think the um, I, the pressure for consumers is something which is a, is has to be treated with some caution. Um, consumers are certainly very aware of these conditions, but the big change again between a market, traditional markets, which were very fragmented, and the global value chain, is that in a value chain the worker often puts the name of the retailer directly onto the product. So, for example, in Kenya Flowers, uh, where they were beginning to uh, upgrade into bouquets, they would put the supermarket name on the bouquet. So it's very easy for an NGO or for a trade union to be able to identify the end buyer and therefore with that the end consumer. Um, and that fuels, if you like, campaigns against retailers targeted at consumers and certainly raises the concerns of the retailers. Um, and so in that case, the retailers then went back to the growers and said, you need to improve the conditions. So it's, it's a sort of uh, the value chain, if you like, links 
all the different players. It links the consumers with the retailers, with the suppliers, with the workers, and then linked to that other civil society organisations, both trade unions that organise workers, and then at the other end, NGOs who who uh, do a lot of advocacy amongst consumers. And when all of that comes together in a positive way, I think you can get upgrading and you can get improvements for workers. Um, I should say, and very, very important though, there is one caveat here, which is in all the examples I've found, um, the, the positive examples I've found, although terms and conditions of work have improved, there are still significant challenges in terms of workers not receiving a living wage so that their money wages might have increased, but because of rising inflation, cost of living, etc., the reality is they still struggle um, and still very under under remunerated within the value chain. If you think of the billions of dollars that, that gets generated in these value chains. So... Can you talk through some of the sort of policy implications of of your research? If you are, um, you know, uh, a global development professional or you work at the UN or in government um, and, you know, you're committed to, say, the the sustainable development goals, what can your research um, tell us about how to perhaps accelerate progress towards those goals. What do, what do like gender dynamics in the global value chain suggest about how um, some of the, the areas for progress that you identified could be accelerated? Yes. No, I think very importantly, if you think from a policy perspective, in the 1980s, there was a strong pressure on many countries um, to open up uh, to free trade and to produce uh, to to provide uh, low wages as as a means of attracting buyers and investment into their country um, countries um, the big change that's really beginning to happen I think in value chains is a recognition particularly by the more progressive of the big uh, retailers and brands and companies that that actually having better skilled better um, supported workers and and smallholder producers as well in your value chain gives you a much more resilient value chain a more sustainable value chain that you're going to be able to deal with other issues such as climate change environmental changes etc much better if you've got a better informed better committed better skilled workforce so companies are beginning to recognize that can you name a name like what's a good company that's an exemplar here well, companies that are really at the lead, ironically, are companies like Nike and Gap, who were under a lot of pressure in the 2000s, late 1990s through to the 2000s, and really, I would argue, turned a corner um, in terms of promoting upgrading within their value chains. They still come under pressure, but but certainly in those those types of uh, leading brands have really worked hard to 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 Im- improve conditions. Um, if you take a, you mentioned Cadbury early, uh, Cadbury and under Mondelez now, owned by Mondelez, uh, set up a big initiative called Coco uh, Life, which is really aimed at produce at supporting smallholder producers and within. Within all of those uh, three, uh, they've all got. Uh, on their on their radar, they have the need to promote gender equality and and enhance 
the well-being of women that are in their supply chains. But I think what all the companies that are active, Unilever is another company that's been very active in this in this field, working closely with Oxfam and others. But I think what all of the companies realize is they can't do it on their own. Um, uh, and don't forget, also for many of these companies, Asia and Africa and Latin America, there are new merging markets. So this is where they want to sell as well as buy. But they can't um, upgrade and they can't um, uh, improve conditions on their own. Um, and that they have to work with other actors, civil society, particularly NGOs um, and, and, and unions, but also, very importantly, the recognition now they need to work with governments in the countries in which they source and in which they sell, and that they need to work with bigger agencies that can link these different actors together, that can link the private sector with civil society, with governments. And I think that recognition has been slow to dawn, but is increasingly there. And this is the SDGs, the, the advancement of the SDGs, which apply to both the global north and the global south now, is helping to really solidify that recognition of the linkages between social, economic and environmental development. Um, and and the, the important aspect of the global value chains is that companies, these big brands and retailers, if you can get them involved and get them actively working with others, they have a, um, a, a lot of uh, leverage in the sourcing countries from which they buy and that, that collectively at, at all the different levels of the value chain, you can help to uplift if you like. Um, and, and, and with that, as far as I'm concerned, it can only be done um, if you're promoting gender equality at the same time. It has to be done on an equitable basis. Um, uh, uh, and, and I see a lot of hope in, in or potential for that for that to to agenda to be moved forward. So collaboration, I think, is the the, the big word. Alliances, uh, but working all the way through the value chain and bringing the commercial dimension in with the social. Um, and the environmental. Well, uh, Stephanie, thank you so much. This was uh, fascinating and uh, look forward to your book when it's published later this year. Okay, thank you very much. All right, thank you all for listening. Thank you to Professor Stephanie Barrientos. That was great. And a huge thank you to the University of Manchester's Global Development Institute for this content partnership, which now comes to a conclusion. But I'm very sort of proud of the content we were able to put together. I thought the um, episodes around this content partnership were really interesting and informative and um, kind of highlighted some interesting research on global development that deserves to be highlighted. So thank you to the good folks at the Global Development Institute. If you are with an organization or an institution and you would like to partner around a series of episodes to showcase the expertise of people in your network or bring some interesting research and ideas to the Global Dispatches podcast listening audience, please send me a note. You can do so using the contact button on globaldispatchespodcast.com. I'd love to tell you about the rates and availability of these kinds of series. All right, see you later. Bye.